Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. From the moment a family is expecting their first child, decisions are made about how that relationship is going to work. Decisions that don't always match the reality. The addition of a new person to the family, and a rather helpless one at that, changes everything. Here we have a baby who needs and expects certain things. Food, warmth, care. We also have parents who often live in cultures that tell them what to expect from their baby. And as I talked about last week with Dr. Helen Ball, often the messages parents get are incongruent with their realities. This week, the discussion continues with Dr. Cecilia Tomori, who has spent a career doing in-depth ethnographic work on how families navigate and negotiate the tensions that affect parenting decisions, particularly from a moral framework of how we make the decisions we do. From colonialism to convenience, you may be surprised at all the ways parenting decisions are influenced. I am so pleased to welcome today Dr. Cecilia Tamori. She is an associate professor in the School of Nursing at Johns Hopkins University. She is also their director of global public health and community health. She's an anthropologist and public health scholar whose research addresses health inequities through teaching, research, and active engagement in global and community health. Her research combines anthropological and public health approaches to investigate and address the structural and sociocultural drivers that shape health inequities in maternal and child health, as well as sexual and reproductive health. She's the author of many scholarly articles and two books on the social and biocultural aspects of breastfeeding. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. It is so good to see you again, because I have not seen you since uh, 2018. Oh, goodness. We're clearly overdue. I know, very overdue. But we have so much to talk about your research, and you've done a lot recently. I mean, it's kind of shifted with COVID and everything, so we'll kind of get into the fluidity of old research, how it links to new and everything going on. But before we even get into that, how did you get interested in the anthropology, public health, all of these health inequities? What led to your doing this for, for your whole career? It, right, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and it's such a good question. And it's actually really a hard question because I grew up in Hungary. And so I didn't really have um, access to sort of understanding what these disciplines might look like, certainly had no idea uh, what people were doing in the US. I grew up under the Iron Curtain. So um, I really, it was sort of an organic process of learning more about how people do, you know, scholarly work in college. And I think I was, I spent a lot of time just being confused um, and sorting things out. And I had a lot of questions. And and so that sounds, you know, a little bit silly, but um, a lot of it is just sort of learning, you know, what, what disciplines actually do and where my questions might fit. And that was, you know, it was a difficult process because I had many of these very interdisciplinary questions. And so I started out in biology and then I added an education major during my undergraduate studies. And, and that was sort of getting there, but, but not quite there yet. Um, and then I realized, you know, that um, upon further reflection and not knowing anything really about the discipline of anthropology, you know, as I was exploring, like, where do these kind of questions fit? Like, anthropology has 
both a sort of biological and a sociocultural side. And all of a sudden, it seemed like that might be a place where I could address some of those questions. And yet, you know, even after doing a PhD in anthropology, still, there were other questions that I had that were not within anthropology. So I think part of what I learned about myself is that I am really an interdisciplinary kind of (laughs) scholar, and I have many questions, and some of those questions fit in different disciplines. And so public health was a natural fit to add to some of those questions, because I wanted to translate some of the the questions that I had and the implications of those questions and those kinds of discussions were taking place in public health. And public health also gave me new language and new ways of interacting with the material where we could talk about what do we do with these insights about policy? What should we be doing to actually address some of the inequities that I was interested in? Um, and that was really not part of my anthropological training. So I think, you know, I need, I apparently needed multiple disciplines to get to this. But I think that makes sense. You know, when I think about academia more generally, one of my struggles is how much it becomes insular, that there isn't this idea of how does it come out? Like, it almost feels like every public health should not be its own area. It should be a component of every single other department. Like, you know, you need within the anthropology department, there needs to be the public health unit of the anthropology department, whose job it is to take all this and help disseminate it to a wider audience so that we actually have an idea as to what to do with this research. I think, I mean, I I, I agree. I think that there is a real um, siloing of disciplinary knowledge. And obviously, anthropology is not the only discipline where it happens. I think it happens across um, fields, you know, even within, you know, public health, which is a huge, you know, such a huge discipline, really going from sort of molecular, cellular issues to, you know, policy. I mean, that's quite a quite a range. And anthropology is, you know, quite a range already, too. So I, I think that that integration needs to happen in higher education and in academia. And it's it's difficult to do, but essential, you know, that's part of the reason why I ended up at a school of nursing because of the interdisciplinary approach of the school, which I really appreciate. Um, So I think it's hugely necessary. And I think it's precisely those kinds of frustrations uh, with the discipline of anthropology that led me to, um, you know, really explore public health in more detail and to, you know, to have more substantial dialogues with healthcare providers, you know, Mm -hmm. who are so important to these topics. So I, I, you know, I can't imagine, I really think that the future of education um, and higher education is interdisciplinary. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that it will be more so. It's you're preaching to the choir. My undergrad was interdisciplinary and I struggled so much even in graduate school that it wasn't as interdisciplinary as I wanted it to be, which is why when I left, it was like, okay, can I start looking at all these different fields? Because this one narrow slice is not telling me everything and particularly psychology, which is so so driven by weird cultural values. And by weird, I mean the acronym weird, not just odd, although equally odd. I mean, why not? It both goes the same way. So it fits with both. So 
it gets you here. And then what brought you into the, because you've done a lot of work on this kind of nexus between breastfeeding and infant sleep behavior. So how did you dive into that realm? specifically? That's a much easier question, actually. So you know, I was um, interested in topics around reproduction at large. Um, and so I was already interested in birth, breastfeeding, um, postpartum, and, you know, that the complexities of that particular area of life. And when I started doing my dissertation sort of preliminary work, I wasn't yet sure what the project would be. I, I thought that it would be something around, you know, birth breastfeeding, probably more breastfeeding since there was less work around that. Mm -hmm. And, and that was a, a strong interest of mine. Um, but I think really it was actually the preliminary research where things solidified because Although I came in with a pretty open set of questions because it was exploratory, people really wanted to talk about that intersection of sleep and breastfeeding. And so it kept coming into those conversations. It was so driven by the participants that um, as we were, you know, discussing these topics with my mentors, I, you know, I kept circling back to that material and, and actually, um, Marsha Inhorn, who is my uh, wonderful medical anthropology mentor, uh, said, you know, why not go with that? You know, mm -hmm. and, and I thought, I, you know, yeah, I think that that is seems to be where people want to be. So why yeah. not explore this in greater detail? And I think that the only part about it that was sort of uh, a bit overwhelming was that there wasn't actually any substantial, you know, monograph, which is sort of the standard in anthropology of the work, there was no monograph on that particular issue in sociocultural anthropology, you know, and what I saw was work from biological anthropology. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty large gap. Um, yeah. And so I kind of had to make my way from there. Which I don't think people appreciate how hard it is when there's such a large gap, because I think, you know, outside academia, it's like, oh, but there's so many options you could pick from. And it's like, no, 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 but it has to fit in this realm. Like, I've got this much space. I've got to make it fit into a sliver here. What do you pick that has the most impact that you can do something with in that realm? So that's, I mean, yeah, when it's so big, it's so much harder to fit that in. So... Before we get to your findings here, you're going to have to explain because not everyone is going to know the ethnographic approach that you took. Because I think when people hear research, and especially, you know, a lot of what gets disseminated today, you're talking about X percentage of people are breastfeeding and X percentage are bed sharing. And we really look at it as a data driven type of information that's based on numerical analyses of common behaviors. But yet your work is very different from that. The approaches you take are are quite distinct and offer us, I think, a much richer view in my personal opinion, but it's, you know, that obviously I think we need both. But what does your research look like? How do you conduct it? And what are the types, types pardon me, of information we get from it? 
I think, you know, and, and my research has really evolved, you know, over time. So I started in that very classic approach, but, but actually, you know, when, when you asked me that question, I realized that actually I was always sort of doing multiple things because right before I started graduate school, I was actually in health, health services research, which is definitely a more quantitative kind of field. And I did do some qualitative work in there. Um, but not as much in depth as in anthropology. So I think I was always sort of a little bit mixed methods. Um, but, you know, to do a dissertation in sociocultural anthropology, so even though my training, my training is in four fields, anthropology, and I should probably say what those are, because most people aren't familiar with that, but anthropology is hugely diverse. We have four subfields in American anthropology traditionally, which is biological anthropology, sociocultural anthropology, um, archaeological anthropology, and linguistic anthropology. And, and at University of Michigan, we're trained in all four fields. And I actually did a lot of four fields work. So I was teaching in biological anthropology as well and doing work in linguistic anthropology and then sociocultural anthropology. But the dissertation ultimately is primarily sociocultural anthropology with some inter intradisciplinary uh, work. And so the, the hallmark of that is um, ethnographic research. And so ethnography is a little bit difficult to explain because in, in some ways it seems more like a life way rather than a research <laughs> method, you know, because it is so um, in-depth and lengthy. I think that's probably the biggest uh, distinguishing factor is that, you know, traditionally ethnographers really spent years um, learning about a particular setting and people and their ways of being. And that's a rather large task. Um, so um, as you can see, that old um, sort of way of doing things is not, uh, does not fit easily into uh, more recent academic frameworks that uh, make you go through this program in a more condensed way. So this requires a lengthy kind of preparation. You know, many people acquire multiple languages before they um, go ahead um, and, you know, I, I learned English not as a native speaker, but I didn't have to learn it, you know, during graduate school. But many people pick up several extra languages to be able to do their work. And so we'd spend several years preparing to go to the field. And then we spend, you know, at Michigan at the time, you know, really to be taken seriously, you had to do about two years of field work. Um, and I think that that's a pretty different approach from most other kinds of work um, for a dissertation. And so, and the product of a dissertation is also quite different. You know, many people tend to write articles or shorter pieces, and we're essentially required to write almost a book manuscript at the end of this. So this is part of the reason why we take so long through graduate school. It's a very intensive kind of program. And in terms of what we do, I think it's also a little bit difficult to explain because we're required to know a lot. So it's not enough to focus on a particular group of people per se. You really have to learn about the history of that particular place that, and the topic that you are addressing. And then you really need to get in depth at everything that could potentially bear uh, on the topic that you're addressing. So, you know, I was looking at... Um, experiences of breastfeeding and sleep over time, and uh, particularly among middle-class Americans um, in the Midwest. And, you know, I followed people from their 
pregnancy, usually their second trimester of pregnancy through at least a year uh, postpartum. So, you know, it's just this very, very lengthy period of time. And I think quite different from other kinds of qualitative research as well that tend to be based on interviews um, and tend to focus on a a smaller, uh, either, I mean, you can conduct large numbers of interviews, but uh, rarely are they conducted by one person. You know, Mm -hmm. we, we are the primary investigators usually in an ethnography, unless it's a team kind of project, but traditionally it's not. Um, And we don't, just do interviews, we really like basically spend time with people. So it looks as if we're just sort of hanging out, um, which is also confusing for people. It's like, what is this? What's going on? Um, but you know, we're, just ignore her. She's just our local anthropologist. Just our anthropologist. Just come. Would you like coffee now? That's- yeah, I mean, it is this kind of surreal thing to be doing because you're integrating yourself into people's lives to the degree that they welcome you. Um, which requires, you know, relationships with people that are long term and long standing. And then, you know, I, so I spent lots of time with people, you know, in their homes, because uh, people were, you know, early on, especially home with their infants, but also, you know, when they came home from work or weekends. But I also spent time, you know, in, in local childbirth education classes for months, you know, I probably there was a period of time when I could just wake up and, and, you know, I would just want to recite classes because that's what I was doing. So much of my time was in the evenings taken up by that. And I went to various events that were relevant. I trained as a postpartum doula. I went to basically everything and anything that could uh, impact these experiences. I spent time at the local hospitals. You know, I watched some births. I um, talk to medical providers. I mean, you know, I, I try to get as much into the topic as I could. So it, you know, it definitely, um, it's funny to see, you know, different people who may not have actually read the book. Um, but look, you know, like they're like, Oh, she dealt with that, you know, number of families. And I'm like, Actually, you know, it's actually several it's so hundred much people. More beyond that, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think about your work, and what I love is I feel like it's, and this is still going to oversimplify it, I know, because it is so broad and, you know, there is so much to it. But, you know, you take bed sharing, for example, and I'm just going to give it as an example. You know, a psychological approach is who is bed sharing? What are they doing? A sleep, you know, approach might be how is it affecting their sleep? And I feel like you answer. Every other question that goes around it, how do people feel about bread sharing? What are the general views that they're given about it from all these different sources before they even embark upon making a decision about it? How does it interact within the family structure or within friends or from healthcare providers after? Like, there is so much to the question. And instead of just poking a little hole, it's like you're try- trying to actually capture all of it. I think it's a really good explanation for an anthropological approach. I think we tend to take a broader angle and kind of try to set up the entire question. Like, where is this question even coming from? Mm -hmm. And I think that was, you know, that is at the heart of it. You know, when I was doing some of that preliminary work and then later in the dissertation uh, field work as well, um, there are these moments of tension and, you know, something becomes problematic. And this Mm -hmm. was clearly problematic 
for people, right? They were wrestling with it. It was a dilemma for them. And so I think I, and this comes from actually a different mentor who's a linguistic anthropologist, <laughs> you know, who suggested kind of thinking through that way, because again, it was coming out of the data. And that's another kind of hallmark of the ethnographic approach is that we work with what's in front of us, meaning it's coming out of empirical interactions on the ground. And that's mm -hmm. where the questions start rather than the other way around. Um, but that tension really um, helped me illuminate the whole field around the particular mm -hmm. topic, you know, and, and I think that's what's really um, been driving me in that particular set of questions is, you know, where do these issues come from? Why are they so problematic in the first place? And what does that tell us about, you know, issues in this particular cultural setting versus maybe somewhere else? Like, what does that mean? So, you know, I think the way you thought about it is helpful. Yeah, it's, I always try to make it at least a little clear for people because I think it is hard to grasp if you don't know ethnographic research. It's hard to grasp outside of, so they're just talking about people's lives? Well, no, that's not just it. There's everything that goes into it. So speaking of that, actually, let's get into some of your research here, because you have done a lot about how families, you know, as you put it, negotiate these kind of nighttime interactions is really kind of the crux of that tension that parents face. And you talked a bit about when they face a struggle, everything like that, the trade-offs that they're forced to make, the selection pressures that happen in this particular group. What can you tell us, you know, a bit about the families you looked at, what you found with regard to this navigating nighttime parenting in this cultural construct? Um, that basically the key finding was that it was very difficult to do. I think, you know, that and that that is um, in, you know, sort of anthropological, this, the cultural anthropological language, you know, that difficulty is sort of naturalized. So it's treated mm -hmm. as if this is how it's supposed to be. It's a given. And I think when people are in it, um, they are struggling to figure out how on earth they're going to make it. I mean, it's quite pragmatic, you know, on sort mm -hmm. of a survival level. Um, you know, how am I going to get through this night? How am I going to attempt to breastfeed my baby? Which, um, you know, and I should say that the participants in my research were all planning on breastfeeding. Um, and that was by my selection criteria. I was interested to see what people who were intending to breastfeed were going to be doing, you know, with this issue around sleep. I wanted to make it a prospective kind of study rather than, uh, you know, whatever cross-sectional sample might occur um, because I was interested in that particular intersection based on the preliminary work. And so I think that the difficulty was a central finding and the idea that this is, is this, it, it just is like, you know, it's sort of a natural phenomenon. And I think part of my work was to highlight how that's not necessarily the case, that the cultural assumptions that people have about feeding babies and how infants behave and how they sleep actually matter a lot in how we navigate that terrain. And then 
you know, the structural circumstances in which we navigate it. So, you know, both the cultural kind of um, ideas that are floating around, but also, you know, how we do things as uh, in American uh, society, which doesn't provide any structural support, basically, to parents. Uh, what does that mean for this group of relatively privileged parents? Um, and part of the reason for choosing that particular group was because I had some concerns, which I still share, about the way in which some public health studies were, quote unquote, targeting or selecting uh marginalized, historically marginalized people and kind of attempting to quote unquote, fix them, you know, um, present the, the people as if they were quite a problematic. Um, I had a real strong antipathy to that. I still do. Um, mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to go in with a different kind of framework. And I, I knew a fair amount from, you know, focusing on sort of American cultural processes that, uh, and reading a lot about the history of breastfeeding and sleep already, I knew that middle-class parents play a particularly important role because the way in which middle-class people kind of frame issues tends to become dominant, not because it's better, but just because of the social position of people. It tends to trickle down from elites and then middle-class people kind of solidify it and then it gets enforced upon everybody else. So I mm -hmm. wanted to know, you know, what would that look like in that kind of a group. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think part of the sad findings was that even for people who had, you know, a fair amount of resources relative, I mean, this is all relative compared to many other people didn't mean that everybody was like super wealthy, but they had more resources than many other people. They were definitely middle-class people with, you know, um, fairly secure employment and housing. And they were pretty educated um, and they were mostly white, which also means a, a, a huge layer of privilege. So all of those things were, were there and, and yet <laughs> they were still struggling. <laughs> they were still struggling. And so that really showed to me that the structural um, context of how mm -hmm. we do parenting, you know, in the United States is just fundamentally um, deficient you know, that there's not enough support. Can I ask what you found with respect to all the earlier messages around it? Because that's what I love about your work is that you were at the hospitals, you were at the prenatal classes, you were at everything else. And so it always felt to me like those elements have such a crucial role in the expectations and the way you think things are going to go, which then can create problems in and of itself, depending on how that's been framed. Absolutely. I think um, all of that was crucial work. I'm very glad that I actually did that work. Um, I think from the get-go, um, breastfeeding and sleep are completely bracketed. So the most important material that people get in these prenatal classes actually focuses on birth and birth alone, as if birth was somehow separate from every other aspect of this, which I thought was pretty stunning. And that yeah. has to do with the sort of the history of the, the, you know, childbirth education movement and the, you know, various issues around that, that we don't need to get into for this particular <laughs> discussion. But I think <laughs> that's another topic. But We will um, do it another day. <laughs> exactly. But I think, you know, the key lesson there is that these um, pieces are fragmented. And so, you know, and that really 
started my later research about, you know, why are these processes so fragmented in the first place in, in, um, you know, in the U.S. and in Western cultural settings. But birth is sort of bracketed. And then we have infant care um, classes. So, you know, they have topics around infant feeding for people who are interested in breastfeeding. They study breastfeeding. If you're going to feed your baby in another way that you have classes on that, um, you have classes on infant care and sleep is like a tiny, tiny little part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything is fragmented. And so in practice, when a baby comes home, those things are not separate. And that poses significant challenges for people because they've never really had these interactions put together. Um, so they, you know, so they're thinking, I'm going to, you know, so I'm committed to this. You know, I, I want to breastfeed. People are telling me this is a good thing. You know, I should be doing it. And then it's unclear what you're supposed to do at night. Yeah. And at the same time, how is this baby going to sleep? Because that's completely in another part of the course, if it's mentioned at all. And, and the sleep part usually only focuses on, you know, whatever sleep safe safety message there is, but not on how to work together across breastfeeding and sleep. So people have really no idea what's going to happen to them when that baby comes out. It feels like what you talked about, your research interests going in, they all have to become interdisciplinary researchers in their own home to integrate all these different areas that are not being integrated for them. Right? They're not, and- yeah, they're not being integrated for them at all. Um, and, you know, they have, um, over the course of the last couple of hundred years, people lost a lot of the cultural knowledge and support that they would have had in communities, you know, of, of women mostly who had lots of experience about how these things actually worked. Um, yeah. And, you know, the medical profession did not have that knowledge, um, you know. So I think that uh, that plays out in those bedrooms at night with families who are, you know, literally surprised. I mean, they don't know much about normal infant behavior because most mm-hmm. people have not been around in, you know, in middle-class American settings have not been around other newborn infants. So yeah. Yeah. Infant so, behavior is like this big mystery. Yeah. Oh, there's little babies. I've met people who had kids who had never held a baby before until it was their own child. And that is surprising. And yet inevitable in our culture. It's that (laughs) it should, you know, it should be a surprise, but yet somehow it's not. So can you tell us a bit, just backtracking here, what is the history that we've lost here? Like you just alluded to, we had this cultural history and knowledge, this cultural knowledge that would have aided a lot of families in not having to become their own interdisciplinary researchers and therefore having to come up basically with their own thesis for their particular lives as to how they integrate everything. Um, What did we have and what have we lost? Um, I think that that's probably the biggest, (laughs) that's probably the biggest issue really. And, you know, something that's kind of preoccupied me since starting that research, you know, gosh, nearly 20 years ago. Um, you know, I, and not, and I don't want to idealize, you know, I don't want to say that people did not struggle or did not have, you know, really difficult circumstances or that people, you know, didn't deal with really um, 
tough situations and, and loss, you know, of, of infants and, and mothers, of course. Um, but in general, um, both historically and cross-culturally, uh, people tend to live in communities and there usually are people around who are knowledgeable about uh, reproduction and they tend to be mid midwives in particular, but also, you know, generations of, of women who have supported, you know, one another usually in these kinds of activities. Again, we don't want to, you know, as an anthropologist, I'm always, you know, worried about overgeneralizing, but there are some kind of cross-cultural patterns here and historical patterns. And what happened was um, a series of huge social changes, you know, from industrial capitalism, urban migration, changing ideas about marriage, medicalization being a, a huge part of this, essentially um, eroded some of these systems of support. And, and actually, the early part of medicalization is all about actively erasing and undermining midwifery. And so that piece really made it very difficult then for people to learn about these kinds of processes. So all of a sudden, we have a switch from community knowledge about these things to a switch to medical experts. And these medical experts who claim to be medical experts had different areas of so-called expertise. And I say so-called because I really am quite skeptical about each of those domains, but about birth um, and about infants, um, those are usually, they were, became separate groups of experts, um, men, and usually white privileged men who were dealing particularly early on with elites. And then, you know, that migrated to other social groups. And we, in that process, we really um, started to listen to other kinds of ideas about how any of these processes are supposed to work. Um, and I think for the purposes of, you know, uh, breastfeeding and sleep, they had tremendously negative consequences. They fundamentally undermined, um, you know, physiological birth, um, the kinds of core things that make birth work. Um, and similarly, the things that make breastfeeding and, uh, and sleep work. And yeah. so people really um, were at the mercy of often really, really terrible advice. And um, unfortunately, that that was another major theme in my study, um, that people had, medical professional had little to offer about basic issues around breastfeeding, uh, very little knowledge, very little support, even among ostensibly supportive people, um, and, and even less on sleep. Or how yeah. those two things work together, pretty much none. Um, yeah. And that, so that left people in, in this vacuum. It's, you know, it's funny, because I think back to my own experience, which is just an anecdote of one person and whatnot. But it doesn't surprise me hearing this, because the thing that was most powerful for me as a parent and growing up was being around my mom, who breastfed my siblings in front of me till they were older, who slept with my sister, especially at the end. That's when she finally embraced co-sleeping in order to facilitate her own sleep overnight and had to kind of come to it 
herself, but it was her journey really came through her midwives. She had a home birth for all of us and this kind of support network that she had of these women that were talking about things that weren't coming up in in Canadian culture at that time. And it was, you know, one midwife came from the Netherlands and that was where she shared that knowledge that she had where midwifery was still there. But I remember growing up and seeing it and having the discussions of my mom always telling me, oh, this worked really well for me because this was really good for sleep and this was really good for that. And I know so many people who never had those discussions, never had it in front of them. And I certainly got more from just witnessing it and then having those discussions, then anything I got from any prenatal class, from any, I mean, I remember my prenatal class, there was a discussion as to, we, there was a breastfeeding component to it, actually, which was really lovely. But in this whole room, they asked, how long are you going to breastfeed for? And I was the only one that said, I don't know, however long my baby breastfeeds for. Like that whole notion that children could dictate when they end, that that idea was they played and they had agency in that choice, was people looked at me like I had just sprouted three heads. And that was, you know, and I was just like, oh, I, I don't know, that's that's what happened in my house. Like, and I'm so much older than my siblings. It's like actually like cognitive awareness of everything that happened there. But it just, it highlighted to me how much that immediate environment around us, the people around us, what we see, what we witness can have such a profound impact on how we address those problems and everything we face later on. I think you're spot on. Mm -hmm. And and the data, you know, about breastfeeding highlights exactly that, that the experiential dimension and people's family history is such a powerful, you know, in, in the sort of quantitative part of, you know, my later work, yeah. once I went into sort of more public <laughs> health, you know, I mean, you can show this quantitatively. So these, yeah. while these themes came from, you know, smaller number of people, I mean, they actually fit into larger patterns. And so yeah. that experience is, is extremely powerful, is far more powerful <sighs> than anyone telling you anything, you know, in the yeah. abstract. Um, and, you know, I think that that is at the heart of it, you know, is that really that link has been cut. And so that really is one of the foundational ways in which those inequities get uh, reproduced um, because who then has the access and the resources to be able to find an answer to these kinds of dilemmas Mm -hmm. and, and who doesn't Um, I mean, the whole way in which these these families invested considerable resources into making breastfeeding work. And that is a matter of, of privilege. So, I mean, I'm not yeah. discounting their commitment because they were also amazing people. However, you know, um, without those resources, it would have been extremely difficult to make it under these yeah. kinds of circumstances because the, the environment for breastfeeding was not supportive. Um, and part of that had to do with the sleep advice, because the sleep advice essentially was telling people something opposite from what the breastfeeding portion was telling them. So they were t- being told, and that was part of the tension that they had to navigate, is they were being told at the same time that breastfeeding is really important. You, quote unquote, should be doing this. You should be really committed to this. And this is like a big thing that you need to be doing. On the other hand, the sleep advice is you should never bring your baby into bed with you ever. And you should cut out nighttime feedings as soon as you can. And then yeah. you should move them to a different space really faster as soon as you can. These things are contradictory 
to one another, but people don't realize that they are because they don't know what normal infant behavior looks like. And so, you know, who then has the resources to figure out that these things are somehow linked actually, and that you could maybe make it work. Um, Not that many people necessarily have that opportunity without consequences. I mean, some people do, but then, you know, they, they also have the consequence of being sort of policed and targeted, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for quote unquote unsafe sleep. And this is actually something I spoke to Helen Ball about, that distinction between the breastfeeding advice and the sleep advice and that tension there between the two that just doesn't match up with what we know, you know, really in so many ways. There's so much to go into to that. I want to switch over a little bit because one of the other things that came up in your work about the pressures is what you call the, the contested morality of breastfeeding. And that was something that's funny because I know we all talk about the morality of breastfeeding, but can you explain what you meant by that for families, um, what it means to have this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So really, these families, and I think generally we still, you know, years after that work was done, we're still dealing with some of the same issues, very conflicting cultural uh, ideas about what breastfeeding is supposed to be. So on the one hand, you know, breastfeeding is idealized. Um, and, you know, especially more recently in the last, you know, several decades since sort of uh, 1970s and 1980s, there is an increasing embracing of breastfeeding as part of the medical uh, quote unquote, right thing to do. So there's this cultural expectation that you should be doing breastfeeding. And, and that's now um, underlined and emphasized by the medical establishment, which again, remember, doesn't know that much about it. So it's kind of an ironic tension there. Um, on the other hand, the social context of breastfeeding remains uh, very fraught. So the other part of the mor- moral landscape of breastfeeding is that it's in practice often stigmatized. And so the everyday activities that uh, are involved in breastfeeding are all stigmatized. So breastfeeding in front of other people, you know, um, really, and, and, and public doesn't really capture it because in front of anyone, you know, in, in people's own homes to being elsewhere, you know, any place can be stigmatized. Um, breastfeeding uh, in the quote unquote wrong way, whatever that is, you know, meaning uh, too often, not enough, uh, which, you know, all of that is also stigmatized, you know, so it's like yeah. they, they say they support breastfeeding, but at the same time, they're like, but you're feeding your baby too much, or you're starving your baby. I mean, <laughs> all of these messages were coming across and my participants, I mean, the a number of negative comments from ostensibly supportive people are shocking. And then yeah. the non supportive people are like a whole another story. Um, So, you know, and then of course, you know, for how long? So, you know, the decisions around how long to breastfeed, you know, quote unquote, too long, that's also, you know, stigmatized. So in, in reality, on the ground, the actual experience of breastfeeding is constantly devalued, criticized, and uh, viewed in a very negative light, often um, sexualized, uh, you know, I mean, so, so that, you know, we can go on and on, but it's, it really is about morality. It's this moral corruption. The idea 
behind stigmatization is that you're somehow morally flawed. You're not the right kind of person. So actually, in, in reality, oftentimes there is no way to be the quote unquote right kind of person because it's impossible. Because on the one hand, you're somehow supposed to be breastfeeding, right? And on the other hand, you're actually not supposed to be doing it because in reality, you can't carry out that act without being stigmatized. So there's no, this is a no win kind of situation. And so that's what I meant by contested morality yeah. obviously so the sleep is a big part you, of it right so how did your families navigate some of this morality issues because it feels like again you talk about the privilege i mean we have the privilege of you might be able to afford supports when it comes to breastfeeding but morally it's not like you can buy someone's moral acceptance for what you're doing i yeah i think that well, you know, they, I mean, they suffered. I think that's part of the answer, sadly, is that they, you know, they struggled with it. They had a really difficult time. They lost a lot of sleep over it. Um, and then, you know, in order to make it, you know, because, because these families were, you know, people who prioritize breastfeeding, you know, by my selection criteria, they kept with breastfeeding. And that meant that they had to compromise something. And so what they compromised is the sleep advice in order to make breastfeeding work and in order to survive, frankly, mm -hmm. and, and, and not fall over from exhaustion. And so most of the families, whatever they were planning on was completely irrelevant because in reality, they were exhausted. And mm -hmm. so they ended up bringing their baby into bed with them whether they wanted to or not, you know, sometimes because they just fell asleep with the baby next to them. Um, and so then the real, the only difference really was about um, whether they persisted with that pattern over time or not, you know, um, and, but most people, you know, I think by default really kind of had to pragmatically bring their baby into bed with them. Um, mm. And they kind of stuck with breastfeeding, you know, with the, all the other cultural stigma around it, um, and they hit it, right? So the yeah. other way, the big piece of this is like, they did something that was viewed as problematic. Um, and therefore the answer to that, and this is true for all stigmatization, by the way, like this is the same, is that in order to, to maintain, you know, the appearance of, a, of appropriate morality, people have to hide whatever is stigmatized. So, yeah. This was, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to get into the public health piece of it is because, you know, when you provide that kind of guidance that prohibits something that it's actually kind of fundamental to the physiology of breastfeeding. If you learn about, you know, the evolutionary history of breastfeeding, which, you know, I'm sure you talked to Helen about, yeah. um, then, you know, because because these two things actually were not separate and they're actually part of the same kind of processes in the first place, which people don't realize because we never said anything about it and there is no community support to help you with it, then, you know, the result is that with this kind of contradiction, you're actually going to end up with driving something underground. You're not going to get rid of it. People are going to bring that baby into bed with them. Yeah but they are not going to have access to the information they need to be able to do that safely, um, which is uh, actually likely going to backfire, right? And so it's either going to end up with people quitting breastfeeding, which I think is the other common trajectory, which I didn't see as much of because of my participants, but that's the other piece. Like we know from the quantitative part is that, you know, people are not able to sustain breastfeeding over time. And I think one of the reasons for that has to do with the sleep advice that we give people. 
Mm-hmm. And the lack of information that we give about sleep and the interrelationship of sleep to breastfeeding. Um, and then the other piece is that we drive it underground um, and then end up, you know, with people falling asleep, you know, because people are told that they should never bring the baby into bed with them, for example, then people end up sleeping on the couch. And the couches are, are so much less safe than a safer environment that you could create in a bed on a firm surface if you talk to people about this ahead of time. So public health, you know, um, a new version of public health that has emerged since that time really is much more focused around, you know, equity, much more focused around meeting people where they are and rather than stigmatizing them. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of these lessons were learned from HIV prevention, for example, that's one of the key areas where public health really like learned some lessons by really by activists who were part of the communities that were being targeted for their quote unquote immoral behavior, right? Um, Public health has a really old and troubled relationship with morality. And so we have the same problem with with breastfeeding and sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. In my view, neither of these matters need to be moralized, right? So breastfeeding does not make you a morally superior parent. Um, In fact, none of the ways that you're feeding your baby makes you a morally superior or inferior parent. Um, And whatever behaviors you engage in, you know, in the health literature called behavior and and anthropology, we'd call it different, you know, how people, you know, interact with one another. Um, It doesn't need to be pathologized. It needs to be understood Mm -hmm. and contextualized. And there's a Mm -hmm. history to each of these behaviors. In fact, it was medical practitioners themselves who told parents not that many decades ago that babies should sleep on their stomach. That was a terrible idea. It was medical <laughs> practitioners not that long ago who were telling people that they should be feeding their baby with formula and with rice cereal and all sorts of stuff and mixing stuff into the bottles to, to make them sleep longer. I mean, these are coming from the medical establishment themselves. So to then turn around and say, this is bad and, and, and you are bad parent is a really problematic thing. So, you know, there's a lot that public health can do to yeah. uh, destigmatize uh, messaging yeah. and to really kind of think about a better way that provides more um, accurate and uh, supportive kind of information for people. I want to hear your thoughts on what they can do going forward, but what it you're saying fully reminds me of why, again, going back, that ethnographic research is so important. Because when things are stigmatized, people lie. And if you're only looking at, you know, I remember there was at some point, some newspaper did a study, I guess a survey, um, pardon me, it was a total survey on, um, you know, people when they say their baby's sleeping through the night and it was something like half of people said they lied. No, I just lie. I say my kid is my kid's not at all. I'm just lying. And yet we take that data when we have this quantitative data that is informing us about what babies should be doing. And, you know, people are like, oh, my God, all my friends' babies are sleeping through the night and no one I know is bed sharing. And this is going I often have to talk to families and be like, "Okay." actually, probably not true. I'm just going to say like, and even just the way people understand it, I have 
met families that would swear to their, they would be like, oh, we do not bed share. No, we do not bed share at all. That is not something we do. We've never, that's not it. And then some conversation two weeks later, oh yeah, well, she gets up and joins us halfway through the night for the rest of the night in our bed. And I'm like, but I thought you didn't bed share. Oh, no, 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 no. She doesn't bed share. But she joins you in bed for half the night. Yes. What's your definition of bed sharing that I'm missing here? Because I apparently have the wrong one. I'm not sure what that means. But people even themselves, because we don't talk about it. There's some, like, I don't know where it... Yeah, I think that that's the thing about, you You know, you're at 100%, right? I think that is the whole issue around stigmatization of anything. And this is why I'm saying, you know, like the lessons that are still being learned, apparently, decades after the work in HIV prevention, for example, uh, you know, it, it's such a, you know, these are such old kind of classic foundational issues that, you know, it's not like there's not any research on this, but yet we kind of ignore it. Um, And it is, you know, what people call X is not necessarily what they're doing at all. You know, I mean, so Mm -hmm. yeah, so lying was a common strategy. And, you know, I think because I had such a long-term relationship with these people, you know, over months and months, right? I mean, I sat through their parenting classes. And if you know, these classes, some of them are very long, like they can be many, many weeks, you know, so we spend a lot of time with each other. I spend time with them, like, you know, when their babies, like, were just, you know, newborns to like months later. So I think I was a a pretty safe person to be around, they knew, and plus, I was an anthropologist, I was already a little bit different, maybe from, you know, medical provider. And that was necessary. You know, the relationships were absolutely integral to people telling me what they actually thought versus, mm-hmm. you know, what they told their providers, for example, which was completely different or relatives right. or friends. And, and you know, I wrote about this because it was so striking. Like they would just report these anecdotes, you know, about like, oh, yeah, you know, I was talking to, you know, colleagues and they were asking, I mean, they constantly were asking these parents about, is your baby sleeping through the night yet? And they would just say, yeah. Yeah, just that's it. Just leave me alone. I'm good. That's I see it all the time. Families that I work with, families on EP, like social media, everyone's just like, oh, just lie to your healthcare provider. Don't even get into the can of worms because if they find out your baby's still waking, all they're going to do is tell you to sleep train and you want to get it, you know, so just just say there's what are they going to do? Come and check your baby at 3 a.m. and find out what's going on? No, they're not going to. So but, you know, I think about like you talk about public health moving forward and it seems like just what you said about your relationship with them, having built it up, having had that connection from the get go. I would think we would want that to be our relationship with our medical providers so that there is a trust, a collaboration that's going on instead of one that really does seem rooted in moral superiority. Like it's not just knowledge superiority, but moral superiority. It's definitely well. moral. I mean, it's it's about authority and power and morality. Um, and I think also, you know, the very problematic relationship of medicine with uh, fundamental inequities. Right. So part of why these families were, quote unquote, able to get away with it is because they were middle class and mostly white. So they and and so what they would do is they would also do these sort of displays of how things are supposed to be. So like having set up a separate bedroom 
with a crib in it, with this beautiful, you know, all the preparation that goes into preparing that separate space for that, that child, that is a visual and spatial manifestation of how things are supposed to be. And so, you know, if anyone were to come to their house, you know, they would see um, what is culturally expected, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily what happens at night, right? Um, and yeah. that provides that safety, a little bit of safety, whereas, you know, um, other families don't have that kind of safety net. And, you know, uh, child protection services could be potentially called in to examine, you know, how mm-hmm. they are taking care of babies. And they could then be accused of all sorts of things and the police might get involved. And so, I, you know, I, medical providers have a huge amount of authority over people. Um, and they often, unfortunately, play a role in perpetuating some of the inequities. And they don't know much about the history or, you know, any of the stuff that I was telling you about. And so the assumption is that they know what they need to know. And, and that's what matters. And they have the authority to decide, you know, whether somebody needs an to be investigated or not. So the, the, the stakes are pretty high. Um, They were higher then than they are now, but they still are, you know, depends on where you are in the country and who the provider is so that the trusting relationship, I think is an ideal that's often not realized. I have a question for you. How did we get to the stage where medical providers went from being a source of medical expertise, knowledge to somehow, I mean, it's extended. It's somehow they get to judge your parenting. And that goes beyond whether or not you've got the flu, whether or not you've got your vaccines, whether or not your child has chicken pox or um, strep throat or what. I mean, in my mind, you think about a medical doctor and their training. You go when you have a physical ailment and they address that ailment. And that's not their role, really, if you think about so much of what they're now offering. I mean, I know in Toronto, there's, you know, a doctor who, from what I've heard from people, insists that people sleep train if they're going to be in her practice. And I have no idea what that even has to do with treating children's medical problems, right? Like, and yet somehow that seems like that's a fair purview of her authority, I think that, the, I mean, the answer to that, I would say, is that medicine has always been in that business. So the uh, the state, the stated purpose of medicine is not the same as the practice of medicine. Yeah. The, you know, and the, and like I said, you know, the, the, the system, the medicalization of these processes, you know, was often violently done, um, you know, and carried out with particular agendas, you know, like erasure of midwifery and targeting particular racial and ethnic groups, you know, both domestically in the United States and through, um, so particularly indigenous communities, black communities, people of color, Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, in the larger global landscape of that, you know, it's, it's part and parcel of colonialism. So, you know, that's why I highlight it in pretty much every talk, because I think that that's sort of where the, I think people need to understand that the system, the medical system, is not a, a, a neutral kind of historical uh, system. And neither is public health, because public health was also hand in hand with these uh, sort of uh, constructs, you know, part of imperial ways of managing populations, right? So, so there, the, it has these roots, 
um, and those dynamics are maintained. So part of it is about just power, authority. Um, And that, of course, always has a moral dimension. It Mm -hmm. means that some people are, are deemed to be superior to others. And that was, you know, at the heart of it. And, you know, this is kind of fairly, you know, blatant, but I think it's really important. I think that was at the heart of how medical professionals undermine these processes, right? That the idea that some people were quote unquote uncivilized, that, that, you know, they, they fed their babies too much, you know, they fed them on demand. They slept next to them was deemed, you know, inferior. Absolutely. And so, um, that is where the history is really. And I, I think that's worth, um, highlighting, because people really need to understand the kind of power dynamics that they're engaged in inadvertently, oftentimes, you know, so an individual medical provider doesn't need to know all of the history to accidentally and inadvertently replicate it in their own interaction. Um, Unfortunately, that's how systems work. Um, So, you know, taking a step back and thinking about what the ostensible goal of medicine is, and how to actually support people would be a great start to reframe mm-hmm. those kinds of interactions. Yeah. And, you know, I think what you just said was really crucial about the individual doctors not necessarily intentionally taking part in it. And some do intentionally try to move away from it. You know, I think part of why my mom had a home birth and was introduced to midwives, this was not her upbringing. She did not, you know, my grandmother's experience was very medicalized, very much listen to the experts and follow along. And it was our family doctor that actually was like, no, you know what, I think you're going to want something different, like knew her and set her up with midwives. And when I was born at home, that was, you know, midwifery was not legal in Ontario. And so he technically was there and had to sign off that he was at the birth, but he just sat back and did it like that was you know what I mean and I can't get him into trouble because he's passed away now so it's not a problem but um that was you know he stood up for her in the sense of being like no there is something wrong with our system and I'm going to do what I can to advocate for you in terms of what you need and want from this situation but I think he was very much in the minority um in terms of being like that. So from a public health perspective, what needs to change? I mean, what are the changes that you would love to see to be able to facilitate more support for families and all of this as we go? Right. I mean, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. That's a big one. That's a big question. I think, uh, you know, in when, when we teach providers, and, you know, and, and this includes, you know, doctors, nurses, any health professional, they need to have a better perspective of, of some of the historical underpinnings of, of these topics around reproduction at large. So, um, and, and I'll talk about the, the new book project that we have on this because we, um, Sally Han and I are co-editing a new handbook a Rutledge handbook on anthropology and reproduction. And so these topics fit into this larger landscape around reproductive practices. I think that really medical providers need to know a little bit more about how these interventions into reproductions, reproductive practices came about. 
Um, I think that context is really important because I think it's really humbling. Um, I think it would also address some of the fundamental inequities that we're seeing today. So understanding those historical roots sets you up well, both to address the problematic aspects of interventions and the, the sort of unequal outcomes that people are trying to address now. So, you know, having a little bit of background, I think really um, humility, <laughs> cultivating a, a, a culture of humility in which uh, providers are taught to uh, not only be the people who, who possess knowledge in the room, but that communities and people and families also come into the room. You know, they are, they deserve and, and merit that kind of care and attention that they are, you know, people, um, you know, who have rights and who have dignity fundamentally. Um, I know that that sounds, you know, but it's really found, it's foundational, right? It's that culture of, of respect and, and where they are not in power per se. It's, yeah. So it's decentering that power dynamic. And then, you know, ultimately, um, thinking carefully about whether the interventions that are part of traditions, you know, within medicine are actually beneficial um, in many cases for this part of life, they aren't, you know, so I think, you know, treating reproduction as a normal part of life, um, not a pathology yeah. and, learning from a, a larger, more globally oriented set of literatures about, you know, what uh, birth, postpartum, normal human behavior look like is a great start to reorienting the field. And, and we actually have some pretty good examples, you know, um, I mean, the WHO actually has some really great resources in some of this. Um, and, you know, and, we should not have to wait for decades of work to prove harm when we already know it exists. So, you know, things around uh, why, I mean, this is one of my favorites, you know, I think last week um, we had a new, very important study around uh, keeping uh, premature and sick babies with their mothers and why it's important to keep them together and how it's actually, it would save thousands and thousands of lives each year. And part of the commentary, um, you know, on the WHO site was about how, you know, there were these decades of assuming that it's better for moms and babies to be separated for medical reasons. And then it turns out that that's actually not the case. Now, I don't think that people have taken this in fully, what the implications yeah. of that are. And mm -hmm. so the idea that separation is the default, which came through my research loud and clear, um, is a problematic assumption. And it's a pretty unique and ethnocentric one. So before we jump to the conclusion that that's necessary, Maybe we need to look at what other options there might be because closeness 
is so fundamental mm-hmm. and it actually, you know, makes a difference in terms of life and death and long-term outcomes that we really care about in a quantitative manner that we can demonstrate in quantitative ways. You know, we spend decades proving, quote unquote, that, uh, you know, moms and babies need to stay together after birth. Uh, we spend decades, quote unquote, proving that, you know, those things fo- foundationally set up you know, the breastfeeding relationship, Mm -hmm. um, we should not have to keep proving this over and over and over again. Uh, But unfortunately, that's still where we are. And you actually just led right into something I want to ask you because you talked it this separation being default is the issue like you brought it up when you talked about setting up the nursery. There's this immediate separation of space. This is baby's space. It's separate than, you know, parent space. It's, you know, we we do define, but cross-culturally, this isn't the norm, right? This is not. So when we look at others, I mean, because you have looked so extensively at this issue, what what is more normative from this, you know, from this basically separation perspective versus inclusion around the world today? No, I think that that's sort of the core. And in some ways, you know, it um, is at really at the heart of my research, I think, as a like a unifying part, you know, of the findings and and what I've done, you know, during the COVID pandemic as well. Um, Ask about that, actually. Yeah. 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 So I think, the and that's what i meant in the very beginning when we talked about you know the idea that these problems are sort of treated as they, as if they were natural as if this is the, just the way that they happen and they, in fact they're just a cultural invention that's not very old at all um oh. basically elites from europe and the us invented the concept of separation um and originally these kind of spatial separations you know even then there was another person there, usually a servant, right? And that servant um, or enslaved person, you know, was the person who was with that child and then also usually um, fed that baby too, often breastfed that baby before that uh, changed later. But, you know, there was, so the the infant was not alone, Uh it was with someone else super problematically, you know, and this has to do with, you know, the whole elite kind of mechanism in, in Europe and, and in the U S but that's where, that's where separate bedrooms come from in the first place. And then it was not until later when it became kind of expensive to have, uh, servants and, uh, there were all sorts of other things happening, but basically it was no longer uh, feasible for many families to have this other person who was taking care of this baby that, that sleep problems sort of emerged onto the landscape. So the idea of this infant being somewhere else, and then the parent would be in another room and there's no one with that baby is a pretty recent thing. And um, it's completely an anomaly. And the majority of the world still, you know, the overwhelming majority of the actual population of people sleeps next to their infants and and young children and many times older people, too, because people are um, social human beings and they tend to enjoy the company of others during the night. Yeah. 
for yeah. various reasons, you know, from um, safety issues to just, you know, comfort. Yeah. Um, but that would be both the historical and the cross-cultural default. And, you know, if we want to take it even further, clearly the mammalian default. default. When we talk about separation here, you you brought up COVID. And I'm glad because you've done some research because it seems we went again to our default of separation when we were separating mothers and babies at birth um, in hospital. It became a standard practice. What can you tell us a bit about that? Because you were looking at that, the effects, the what the heck was being thought of there. Right. And what did you find? I mean, just I'll let you go there. We reverted to the default. Um, it was not a surprise, but it was a disappointment. So um, the WHO, you know, which you know, has this more global framework, has, a, you know, a wealth of experience about how important, uh, you know, appropriate attention to birthing and postpartum care are for, you know, ultimately survival and long-term outcomes, had a very different perspective and really was uh, the default there is not to separate. The default is to keep together as much as possible because they know what the consequences are. But the... Uh, <laughs> Because the early guidance came out of China, which has a sort of um, outdated Western model about separation. So that actually started in, in Western settings. It's an older biomedical model that kind of traveled and, and persists in uh, China. That kind of response and, you know, of course, reinforced by some of the previous epidemics that they faced was the the sort of vanguard of the guidance. And the WHO kind of tried to uh, reiterate the importance of not jumping to that immediately. And so some settings that were more thoughtful, even in Western settings that tend to do separation, at least tried to come up with a, a more um, friendly set of guidance, which was the case, for example, in Britain, which is not particularly great at actually implementing the guidance, but it was a nice idea. Um, and they did implement it to a degree. Um, some places in Europe also had a somewhat more friendly approach to moms and babies, but not the U.S. So, yeah, so, you know, without going into the whole roller coaster of events, because it was a whole saga of, you know, essentially the CDC recommending considering separation to looking like maybe they did actually consider the importance of togetherness and breastfeeding to the AAP deciding to double down on separation um, for a long time. That was a, a bit of an unexpected shock to the reversal of all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, we're continuing to have fallout from it because once you implement something, it's very difficult to fully undo the damage that you've caused. Um, I do think, you know, and, and this is sort of the lectures that I gave on it and the, the papers I've written, is that the cultural assumptions, the cultural ideologies that we have influenced the policy decisions mm -hmm. without people necessarily realizing it. So the automatic assumption was that it's safer. So the, the assumption is that it's always safer to have these two bodies be separate. Um, and that, I think, is this old set of cultural assumptions that come from a biomedicalized approach to this whole series of presses. So I was not surprised because I had written about it, obviously, in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those spatial separations that I talk about in terms of people's houses, they're also 
very much reinforced in medical care, you know, all the way from the beginning of birth and hospitals. So babies are, you know, although now they're placed more often skin to skin and with the birthing parent, oftentimes still, despite that guidance in actual practice, babies are then put into these bassinets and wrapped up like a burrito and kept there. And that is the default. And that's what you see in many photos of newborn people. Like people are really excited to announce. It's always, I always find it a little bit heartbreaking because I'm really happy for the parent, but I'm also devastated because it's really not how things are supposed to work. It's this idealized baby in the bassinet by itself, sleeping angelically wrapped up like a burrito is definitely not the way things are supposed to work. And then people are surprised why breastfeeding is difficult. It's because the baby and the the parent didn't have any time to have that skin-to-skin contact, the closeness of proximity that really sets things up and that stabilizes the baby and that regulates the baby early on that then really sets things in motion, um, which is where sort of like my biological anthropological training comes in. But that that piece is so foundational. And I think that, you know, maybe that's one of the key, um, you know, trajectories in my work really is that that closeness mm-hmm. sets up so much and the consequences of disrupting it are really, really, really uh, significant. And they're underestimated. And the reason why they're underestimated is because we have these powerful cultural ideologies that suggest the separation is the default and that individuals are that somehow infants are self-sufficient or they should be, and we should be working towards increased self-sufficiency. And this may get us totally off topic. So feel free to tell me to just be quiet. Um, it, you're, I know exactly what you're saying that we have this default of separation as positive really it's like a view that separation is good and yet you know we have a history that shows us how we've used separation to the detriment of others and I think you know last week here we discovered a mass grave of 215 indigenous children as young as three so I think about our colonial history and the use of separation to intentionally inflict harm and to decimate a culture and so I always feel this this struggle to go back to say on one hand we have this group talking about separation as positive and yet we've known it's so negative that we've used it as a tool of oppression against other cultures so I mean is it like the left hand not talking to the right what is happening that we almost like you said, like somehow we have to prove that separation of preterm babies is not good, is harmful. And but yeah, because we knew taking away babies from their mothers when they're indigenous. Did we just think that I mean, maybe we did think that indigenous people were just different so we could do it without. But it was done to intentionally inflict harm. So there seems to be this like incongruence between this view of separation depending on the lens and the lens in which it's being examined. I think you're nailing that connection. I don't think this is off topic at all. I think it all kind of goes back to that 
you know, those questions that I keep coming back to about how this all started and why these things are so problematic in the first place, because, and that's why I brought up the colonial piece of this, you know, I think, so the, so usually I talk about, you know, colonialism, capitalism, and biomedicalization coming in together, sort of it's an, an triumvirate, unfortunately, that are deeply interlinked. And so I think, these things are happening at the same time. So the violent separations that are happening to, you know, enslaved people, right? And indigenous people are obviously, they're, they're completely linked and they are linked to that whole moral authority hierarchy that we talked about too. So the assumption that these men, usually, you know, white medical men, and their assistants who tended to be white women, often mothers groups and, and things like that, you know, were the agents of carrying out some of the pretty terrible, violent things, um, you know, both, like I said, in the domestic colonial context and the expansive imperial context. Um, these things were happening at the same time as this kind of scientific ideology of parenting is taking off. So I, I think you're completely right there, you know, there are these interlinked pieces to the separation part, mm -hmm. you know, so on the one hand, they can be weaponized and they are agents of very thoughtfully planned and executed agents of oppression, right? And you're absolutely right. So they were fully aware that this was, this was harmful to those communities and that's why it was done to them. Yeah. And, and at the same time, the idea that this infant separately is somehow better, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so, so there's the violence piece, but also the idea of inculcating that infant with superior moral values that are part of the civilized. Yeah. I think that those, that's like the answer there. So I think that there, it's a complex answer, but I think that it's happening sort of at the same time. So the violence is done both to harm and at the same time under the veneer of sort of civilization, yeah. um, but definitely linked to ideologies of morality, right? Because part of what these infants and uh, young children were then supposed to do is to adhere to this new way of behaving rooted in, uh, you know, Western cultural uh, and religious kind of values um, that were not all the same because some of them were, you know, more Catholic oriented, some of them were more Protestant, you know, um, but definitely inculcating those kinds of values uh, of, of uh, not not community based values, but about the individual and their behavior. It also makes me wonder if at that personal level, the separation of mothers and babies to a degree makes the idea of separation of others more palatable for the public at large so that 
those who may not be the ones in power, but, oh, well, I separated from my baby. It's not all that bad that they're taking these kids away because that's actually for the best because I can kind of create it as an extension of what has happened in my home to a larger scale, but it's still, it's just a step up as opposed to if you are in a culture that is interdependent with the idea of proximal, that feels so horrific at the idea that we would do that, that you you get more public support for something like that when you are weaponizing it, if it comes from something that people have an iota of, I don't know, um, buy-in experience maybe? with. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. it's... I think probably, I, I do think, so, I mean, the whole, the idea that babies are fine, separate, comes from the elites. Yeah. Like it doesn't come from any, you know, like regular everyday kind of, that was not either feasible nor necessary, nor desirable to like put your baby somewhere else, like made no sense. So, you know, like I said, the whole thing was about elites driving this to begin with. And then middle classes tend to copy that elite. They want to be like the elite and the medical people who were espousing these values, you know, that were circulating, they clearly didn't make it up themselves. They were just, you know, they were telling women how to do it. Um, and, you know, and they are also some of the, you know, people, the medical people overlap with those colonial architects of some of these policies. So, um, I think that that question has not been explored yeah. adequately in the historical literature, uh, but there's a, probably a whole lot more there that could be looked at. And I think the reason why it hasn't been explored is because the majority of history is written for and by, you know, uh, white people um, yeah. and actively underplays and erases these kinds of pieces. So, um, you know, and then there's like a different group of people, you know, coming scholars who've come from those communities themselves writing about, you know, what else is happening. So the two aren't always being put together. Oh, my goodness. There is so much to talk about with this. And it is so huge. I, I am cognizant of time here. So I have to allow you to go back to work. Um, but this I, I just I love talking to you. I could talk to you for hours. This is so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of expertise, especially because it's in such a unique way that you approach everything. And I just love it because it does encompass so many different areas. It really feels like you get at the picture as a whole. And we need that, so much more of that. So before I close, is there anything you want to share? And what are you working on now? I know the new book you've got coming out, but what research? What are you diving into now? Yeah, I mean, many things at once, I think, you know, as usual. Um, but I think, you know, maybe one piece that we didn't talk about that's worth mentioning is that part of those, you know, I'm interested in those larger power systems. So I'm interested in the historical part. And I'm also interested in the, the piece, the capitalist piece. So, you know, we talked a lot about the biomedical piece. We talked a lot about mm -hmm. the cultural piece, but there is this capitalist piece to my work as well. And so I'm really interested in the, the intersections of these, you know, all these different threads and the, you know, the, the pieces about the corporate strategies um, that played a huge role in undermining breastfeeding 
uh, in particular. And so, and, and other, and, you know, other areas of public health uh, as well, you know, basically capitalist strategies to expand markets that ultimately hurt people. Um, and, you know, undermining breastfeeding is just one of the many industries that does that, uh, you know, that I'm most familiar with, but it's not the only one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's definitely an area of interest is it's kind of a linkage across the historical domain, the cultural domain, the public health domain, uh, with, you know, what public health people have been calling the commercial determinants of health. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very interested in that. Um, and that's an we'll area that I'm exploring more. Well, we'll have to talk about that next time. I'll have to get you on to go through all of that for another, because it's fascinating. I mean, there is, there's so much, these topics are so huge. It's like getting into it. There's just so much to explore here. It's crazy. Like, and more infuriating, the more you delve into it. I think that that, yeah, I think that is a good way to end. You know, I think, you know, if you asked, like, what is it that fuels some of this work? It would be rage. Yeah, I think sometimes just like the exploitation of people, the vulnerabilities that people end up having because they're put into it, the lack of structural support, the manipulation Mm -hmm. of people. um, I think those are some of the things that I, you know, that really make me upset. And, you know, I think we have the power to challenge some of that through our work and Mm -hmm. strive towards something better and more equitable. So I see that as part of my job. I love it. Thank you so much. That is, we are lucky to have you doing it because we need more people like that, especially in these bigger systems, not like you said, like the public health that actually does help us change policy and not just create niches of information that aren't being utilized to their best degree there. Yep. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. I will have you back because now we've got to talk about capitalism. So we will save that for next time. Thank you so much once again for being on. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this episode has helped you see how our choices in parenting may not be as simple as we think. Join me next week as we actually get to go in-depth into one of the morally contested areas of breastfeeding, that of breastfeeding an older child. Meg Nagel, the Milk Meg, and I sit down to myth-bust the most common myths we've heard. For all those who have or plan to nurse beyond infancy, we've got you covered. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.